At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This podcast is for the 99% of people who get care in America. We're not clinicians or policymakers. We're patients, we're caregivers, or executives and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and we have a desire to change it. This podcast brings listeners backstage at innovative organizations with innovative individuals across America that are putting patients first by delivering exceptional care to anyone and everyone. Today is a treat of an episode. Very, uh, I wish it happened more often. We get caught up in conversations about the latest and the greatest and what's happening and tips and tricks and things to do. And a lot of that is based around just frustrations from the medical community. But today we have a real treat. We get to talk about more informational, more educational, more cutting edge type of topics. And so joining us today to talk about lung health and the importance of lung health in our population, please welcome Dr. Melan Han who is the Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Michigan, a spokesperson for the American Lung Association, and the author of Breathing Lessons, A Doctor's Guide to Lung Health. Dr. Han, thank you for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thank you so much, Chris. Happy to be here. Now, when your team reached out, you know this is a conversation that is a little bit outside of what we normally do, normally talk about, but it's such an important topic, obviously, uh, when an expert such as yourself reaches out and says, hey, we have some really interesting information to share about what I would consider, you know, a pretty necessary organ and system for the body. And then we're going to say, okay, yeah, let's make sure we can get the time and get you on here. So give us a quick rundown, you know, really of what uh, your work has been and what your message is to the broader medical community. Yeah, well, thanks, Chris, for having me on and giving me a, a chance to talk about this. Uh, you know, I've been a spokesperson for the American Lung Association for many years. And I have to be honest, for years, it's been a little bit of a snoozy job. <laughs> there, a lot of people weren't particularly interested in, in talking about uh, lung health issues because for many years, I think people view it as someone else's problem. You know, well, okay, yeah, there's some kids that have asthma and then there's those old people that smoke and they get COPD and maybe they get lung cancer. But for most of us, this really is, a, you know, isn't really a problem. And then COVID-19 hit, and suddenly we had a lot of people asking questions about how the lungs work. And as I began digging into understanding the questions and the confusion, I realized that there was a huge gap in the public understanding of how their lungs work, as well as a gap on the physician side in terms of I think how we message to patients and how we help the public become more aware, not just about lung disease, but also how people can protect their own lung health. And I think that word lung health isn't actually something that 
we talked about much and we still don't talk about that much and I think we need to talk about it a lot more. So I, in the beginning of the first lockdown and I think we're in the middle or gosh, I don't know, I think we might be in surge number five here in Michigan. <laughs> I'm losing track a little bit, but in the middle of lockdown number one, uh, this I began really digging in and writing and trying to explain first to patients how their lungs work. I think it's something that takes time. There are not necessarily a lot of really good resources out there. And so I thought that was important, helping patients to understand how we as physicians diagnose lung disease. You know, for COPD, which is one of the most common causes of death and usually ranks somewhere between third and fourth leading cause of death in the U.S., roughly two-thirds of those individuals never even get an appropriate diagnosis with lung function testing. So that's kind of the really not great state of care where we were at, you know, even, even before the pandemic. And so we as physicians know this is important, but we also get really busy. And if I could help patients themselves understand the kind of testing that they should be asking for, then it would really help all the way around. I think that we as physicians, and I'll, I'll be honest, I blame not just physicians in general, I blame my own subspecialty, which is pulmonary medicine, and that we just haven't been vocal enough to try to educate both physicians and the public on the importance of screening for lung disease. But then I also, you know, to be honest, in medical school, we don't really, lung health was never a word I ever heard. And I did not learn anything about, really very little about lung development and how to educate patients about things that they could be doing sort of over the life course based on evidence to either defend against harm or even in some instances proactively improve the health of their lungs. So I actually did quite a bit of research for the book to try to really lay that out for people as well. And so I think as you, as you know, when patients come into the office, nobody ever comes in and says, well, I'm here for my lung health checkup today. I'd like to talk about preventive measures, right? No, people come in because they're short of breath. And the problem is that by the time patients get short of breath or they actually make it to the attention of the medical community, the unfortunate part is that in many instances, quite a bit of lung function is already lost or the damage is already pretty severe. And so that was a bit of a, a wake-up call for me as well uh, in writing the book is just trying to raise awareness and get both physicians and patients thinking about it earlier and just to be so much more conscious of how we breathe and how we can protect our ability to breathe. Now, I know enough to be dangerous. Um, professionally, work with a lot of physicians across the United States here. I was pre-med, all right, back in college. So you know, that's that's means absolutely nothing. Uh, but I have an interest in sciences and, and, and uh, you know, medicine, and that kind of a thing. If, if you just pulled over to somebody on the side and said, hey, what does lung health mean to you? They say, well, I don't smoke. Is that a common thing of, well, I must be okay. Like I can take a deep breath. I've never smoked. What other factors are coming into this? I know you mentioned asthma before. I know there's a ton of studies out there that say, you know, people's air quality in their homes are probably worse than it is outside. But we always talk about seasonal allergies or secondhand smoke seems to dominate the conversation. Right. And so the part of the problem is we don't do any kind of routine lung function testing. Uh, you know, think about how many times you've had your blood pressure measured. You know, have you ever had your lung function measured, Chris? I don't think so. I don't think so. And, and a lot of that I, I kind of blame on medicine being very reactionary. 
at the same time, just as a whole? So there were a couple of studies that came out uh, during the pandemic that for me were incredibly enlightening, and I have to admit, have really changed how I think about this. So there was a study that was done in Oregon, and they looked at the impact of the wildfire season that we had in the middle of the pandemic. And they found that in the area of that was exposed to the wildfires, there were roughly in excess 20,000 cases of COVID and 750 deaths. And what that suggests to me is I bet you almost none of those people realized that that exposure resulted in lung injury that may not have actually hit their radar, right? We don't even have a name for that kind of disease, right? It's just there's some micro lung injury, lung inflammation that happened that then increased their vulnerability for contracting and, and suffering severe illness from a respiratory virus that happened to be going around at the same time. There was another study that came out of the University of Michigan where they looked at patients that had had biopsies to try to understand what had happened after they had COVID. So they had had very severe COVID and, and significant lung abnormalities. The interesting thing is that some of those patients just happened to have CT scans before they ever contracted COVID. And they found a, a portion of them actually had lung inflammation, some hazy appearance. On and the never CT knew it? Scan and never knew it. And so I actually think that some of the huge variability that we've seen with respect to why some people seem to have very mild symptoms from COVID and other people are in the hospital relates to pre-existing lung disease or lung injury that people were never aware that they had in the first place. So I think that the spectrum of where people are at at any given time is, is probably far greater than any of us realized. And one of the things I want to help people to understand is that this is not someone else's problem. This is our problem. So there was another study that actually came out a few years before the pandemic. And again, they looked at COPD, which is, again, a very common chronic lung condition. But this is the fascinating thing. I'm going to bet that almost every physician listening to this podcast thinks they know how COPD occurs, which is the mantra we've been taught for years is, well, you started smoking and, you know, you, you accelerated your loss of lung function in adulthood and end of story. That's how you got COPD. But this study actually showed that roughly half of they went back because the thing is, again, we don't get lung function testing on a routine basis. So they went back to some studies that had done it just because it was part of a study. And they had followed people over very long periods of time, including pediatric populations. And what they found was roughly half of the individuals who developed COPD did not actually have accelerated lung function decline in adulthood, regardless of whether they smoked or not. The real problem was they never hit peak lung function in the first place. We hit peak lung function in our mid-20s, usually. Lungs are still growing into young adulthood. And for half of these individuals, something went wrong such that they didn't they never kind of achieved what we would consider sort of their predicted normal function. Which when you think about 
it is a profound number of people where things are going wrong. This is not some one-off, 1%, you know, as physicians, when we think about people that where things go wrong during childhood, well, you think, okay, well, there might be that one person that has really severe asthma or that one child, for instance, that was born prematurely. We know that prematurity is a, is a risk factor for impaired lung development and lung growth. But this is large swaths of the patient population that are being affected. And so, For the book, I began thinking about all of the things that can go wrong, either when we're in utero and the lungs are actually developing, whether that's nicotine or air pollution exposure or infections that moms have, uh, prematurity and all the, you know, we have, my son was born premature. We have so many more technologies that can now help deliver babies earlier. Uh, But at the same time, that's also going to probably come with it some risk for impaired lung development. I recently saw someone in my clinic who came in because they're very young, they were 20, had been short of breath for a while, couldn't really understand why they couldn't keep up with their friends playing basketball, began digging into childhood history and determined and and started patient actually brought their mom with them and uh, said, well, tell me about when you were born. Tell me, did you ever have any issues growing up? Like, oh yeah, we forgot. Born prematurely, first year of life, had tons of respiratory issues. And I'm fairly certain in looking back through the chart that this individual did have severe lung injury from being born prematurely and then just got lost to follow up for 20 years. No one really did much past the age of seven and and now they've got severe issues. So one of my goals is to try to flip that conversation and really help us understand that all of us are at risk and that this is something we all need to be aware of and be talking about. We're talking today with Dr. Malon Han out of the University of Michigan. You kind of beat me to that because I was going to ask, you know, when when somebody is developing into their 20s and and we hear kind of the same thing with with brain development, that it just doesn't stop once you turn 18 and you're considered, you know, a legal adult. There's a lot of different things that, that happen. So are you seeing more environmental or more kind of genetic issues for lack of, I guess, mature development, full term development for lungs? As with everything, I think it's a combination. We're beginning to learn more about lung structure and that certain lung structures are certain ways that the lung can develop are definitely genetically influenced that are going to make people more predisposed, say, to inhalational injuries. So there's certainly, you know, other people, for whatever reason, much more addicted to nicotine. It's genetic. It's pre-programmed. There was no way they were ever going to be able to quit. And so they're also at genetically increased risk for things. But then there's also a huge environmental component. Uh, It's respiratory infections in childhood where hopefully we can stave that off with vaccines. There are obviously sources of indoor and outdoor air pollution when we're growing up. Now, unfortunately, we have this new sort of unknown vaping and electronic nicotine use on top of the conventional cigarettes we were already dealing with, but even more so in youth rise in, uh, you know, marijuana, smoked marijuana, where we don't really fully, I think, understand the long-term consequences. And then, you know, as we move into adulthood, we're, I think, getting better and better clarity on occupational exposures. Uh, And, you know, and it's not just, you know, when we think about occupational lung disease, people think, oh, well, it's the coal miners. It's it's something obvious. It's not always that obvious. There's nail technicians and hairdressers and sanitation workers and and people, you know, doing cleaning work and being exposed to to harmful chemicals. All those people are potentially at at increased risk for lung injury. I'm curious because you mentioned uh, multiple times, hey, we're still learning about this. We're still learning about this. Do you feel that kind of the study, this field has lagged behind 
other major kind of sectors of medicine, med- oh, major um, areas oh, of research? absolutely. It's lagged well, why is, Yeah, why? I mean, it's so <laughs> important, right? I mean, to me, like, I don't mean to be kind of lighten and kind of laugh about this, but, you know, when, you, when you're walking up the stairs and you're short of breath, you think, wow, I mean, I'm out of shape, but there's other things, other factors in there. So my point is, like, it's such a tangible aspect of daily life. When I said earlier that so much of, of medicine the practice of medicine is reactionary. Being short of breath is something that you can feel, you can touch, right? It's not just something happening under the service that will present itself in a couple of years. Like it's tangible, it's active, right? Yeah, so it. I actually spent quite some time, the whole last chapter of the, the book I wrote is actually dedicated to me trying to figure out why we're at where we're at now. And so it's it's kind of interesting. It's this really long saga and it goes all the way back to the guy that invented the sort of, predecessor to the modern day spirometer, how we measure um, breathing tests. He actually was both a physician as well as sort of an actuary for a life insurance company. And he actually figured out that lung function predicted lifespan. And he he knew this a long time ago. He was a life insurance? (laughs) (laughs) All right, you got my attention. But, you know, the machine was kind of large and clunky and and it just never got adopted widely by the medical community. He died under mysterious circumstances in Fiji. <laughs> and whereas the stethoscope and blood pressure, so I'm going to compare it to, to the evolution of our understanding about heart disease, for instance, what physicians really were early adopters with the blood pressure cuff, particularly when it got combined with the stethoscope, because it allowed them to measure both systolic and diastolic blood pressure. But Honestly, this is going to sound really funny. It made them look cool. So in the the early 1900s, they felt like it was something that would help distinguish their skill set from anybody else. So they they could easily be carried into their doctor bag. They'd carry it into someone's home. They'd whip it out. It could show, like, look how facile I am with this. I'm worth the money you're paying me for this, right? And they just started doing it. And then we ultimately got a lot of measurements. And then over time, we... uh, finally put two and two together. And then there were large investments into heart health. We had the Framingham study, which uh, many people are familiar with. And when we started following large populations over time, just collecting blood pressure measurements and cholesterol and things like that, then over time we put two and two together. Oh my God, high blood pressure means more strokes, more heart attacks. We actually need to, you know, we had that, that kind of information, but we've never made that kind of investment in lung disease for one thing, Physicians weren't really excited about about doing spirometry. When you mentioned that spirometry never really caught on, and you gave us a great example of stethoscopes coming up and kind of the aura of that community physician in the, in the little black bag and making house calls, I could see where those early spirometers were difficult to carry around. But why has that kind of, uh, I, I don't know, bias persisted? Well, the, the funny thing is also that pulmonologists are to blame as well. So think about how you do blood pressure measurements, right? Anybody can do them. And do we always do it the way we're supposed to, right? So in theory, you would have a patient sit in a quiet room for 10 to 15 minutes. And you might actually, like if we're going to do blood pressure for a clinical trial, you actually have to get a measure multiple times and you average that measure to try to get the most accurate measure. We never do that in clinical practice. But having said that, for spirometry, 
Pulmonologists who set the standards for how it's done have held spirometry to extremely strict standards. It has to be done by, you know, a trained a technician. They have to do every maneuver has to be re repeated multiple times and only if the measure is repeatable do we take it. That's why a lot of doctors don't feel comfortable doing it in their office. It's moved into these specialized spirometry labs. And so unfortunately, I think perfection has become the enemy of good. <laughs> And and because we've sort of shrouded it in mystery and held it to this super high standard, which means the measures are very, very good. At the same time, nobody's adopted them because they're just uh, whatever. It's too hard. I'm not going to deal with it. It's inaccessible. Right. And, and it kind of shocks me to hear you say that because you look at most people's wrists or their phones. They're able to tell them the resting heart rate, the pulse rate. Heck, even pulse oximeters are, are wrist bound right now. Any kind of advancement in technology that's wearable, that's accessible, that you're seeing is actually effective in getting us to the point where it's like, oh, okay, this is actually going to be beneficial rather than just noise getting in the way. Well, I think the first thing is probably just pulse oximetry, right? A lot more people are measuring their oxygen levels than they were prior to uh, the pandemic. And I think, you know, there's more and more wearables that are now including a pulse ox measurement as part of that. There definitely was an acceleration in technology during the pandemic for mobile spirometers, things that you can attach to your phone. Some people are looking at whether even breathing into the phone, just listening to someone either breathe or blow into the phone could be some crude measure of lung function. And it may be that this type of disruptive technology at least could help to perform some level of screening to get ultimately get people in. You know, another sort of funny thing is that, and I never would have predicted this, but this is actually where I think the field is going, in, is that a lot of patients are actually eligible for lung cancer screening now, where many patients beforehand were not getting chest CTs. And we're now in this bizarre position where more patients are getting lung CAT scans for their lung cancer screening because it's a box that we're all checking now. More people are getting that than are getting screened for lung disease with breathing tests or with questionnaires. And so now at the University of Michigan, for instance, I'm just starting in on this project where we're going back through the data and I'm looking at over 8,000 lung cancer screening CT scans and we have some algorithms I can apply to try to figure out how many of those people based on abnormalities on the CT scans probably have COPD. So there are, I mean, just simple questionnaires. There are many ways that we could screen, you know, questionnaires combined with peak flow meters and or, or some app on the phone. I think we're getting there. We just have not hit sort of one standardized best practice way of doing it. And so I think in the meantime, the onus is really on us as physicians to just really ask about those risk factors, prematurity, episodes of repeated respiratory infections, frequent episodes of asthma. Uh, you know, you get really knocked out every time you get a cold. All of these different things, you know, what people do for a living. Do they have any bizarre hobbies? It's really, I think, the onus is on us and to have a very low threshold to push patients about symptoms, whether they can keep up with other colleagues or friends when they're doing sort of normal activities, and then to have a low threshold of moving them on for spirometry, because it is painless. It's not that hard to do. And if you don't have it in your own office, it's it's not hard to get. Is this something, uh, a lung functioning test, uh, spirometry, that's something that should be just inherent part of physical exams or annual checkups more often? And then who's kind of responsible for it? Because I'm a big patient responsibility advocate that 
No one's going to take care of yourself like yourself, no matter what you do and how much you trust somebody. So is it really on the physicians to say, oh, hey, you haven't had this in a while? Or is it on the patients to say, hey, I'm really curious about my lung functioning. I would like to do this test. So it's really tricky, right, with screening tests and group guideline recommendations and reimbursement, right? Think about all the arguments we've had about when mammograms should be done, when should PSA be done, et cetera, et cetera, right? And it's always about risk and benefit. So for spirometry, the tricky part is that we don't actually have a lot of good data to say. It's not just if I were to screen, would I pick up lung disease? The threshold that has to be met typically is, would it actually impact patient outcomes? Would I find something that if I were to do about it, I would prevent a death or I would prevent something bad from happening? And they haven't actually been able to show that, but I think it's in part not because of negative evidence, but because of lack of evidence. We just haven't done the studies. The other argument that people will push back with, and there's a group that puts out a statement on this every couple of years called the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. And they say over and over, and don't, don't, no population screening for spirometry, no population screening for spirometry. And they, again, sort of emphasize there's nothing we as physicians would do differently. The flip side to that argument, however, and the argument I've been making is just because I as a physician wouldn't do anything differently. In other words, I'm still going to tell you not to smoke. I'm still going to tell you to live clean, you know, et cetera. It doesn't mean a patient wouldn't do something differently, right? So doesn't mean that a patient might be more encouraged to stop smoking, might be more encouraged to make better habits. This young person I recently saw in my office on top of their prematurity of birth and the sort of trauma that happened early in life also smoked and vaped. I bet he and his family would have had a lot more serious discussions about the potential harms of that particular behavior had they known his lung function was already sort of half of what it should have been starting out adulthood. So I'm not convinced. The problem is we don't necessarily have the data, but I'm not convinced that taking this message to the people wouldn't wouldn't make a difference. So in some ways, yes, the physicians need to be better. But I do agree that in some ways, because of where we're at with the evidence, this really has to go back to the patient on a certain level to think about their risk factors, think about what they're being exposed to, think about their symptoms and how they feel like they're functioning, and then to really push physicians, because if there is something that clearly is a concern, then I think screening with with spirometer really is well-founded. What what struck me about that, and, you know, in our world, we call them come to Jesus talks, right? If If you're saying, like, look, your lung capacity is half of what it should be at your age. You mentioned earlier, marijuana legalization across the states really don't know the impact from the lung health side of that. Vaping is something that we're seeing in middle schools and high schools, and kids think it's harmless, right? And so the biggest, brightest burning question that I see in medicine is, how do I get a patient to listen to me? And so much of that is patient responsibility, right? And you see some, a lot of crazy stuff with billing and uh, I don't even want to go down that road of how you measure quality metrics and readmissions and that kind of stuff. But physicians are saying, well, I, I told this person to stop smoking and they won't. So what do I do? What you just said seems like, hey, that's a little arrow in your quiver to say, here's what your spirometry test, well, here's what your lung capacity is here's what it should be is this real enough is this going to hit you between the eyes to have you change your habits so that's a really good question whether having that spirometry measurement would actually impact patient behaviors 
to my knowledge, there actually was one study that was actually done on this. And the interesting thing is that it really didn't matter whether the patient's spirometry numbers were impaired or not. What mattered was whether the physician had a conversation with the patient where they actually explained the lung function numbers in terms of lung age. So you have the lungs of a 70-year-old, <laughs> you have the lungs of an 80-year-old, or it, it could have even been you have lungs that are appropriate for your age, but apparently explaining it in that way really made the message hit home for patients. And so I do think, and that again is part of writing the book, you know, when we message with patients, everyone responds to something a little bit differently. And so I do think the onus is on us as providers to try to figure out how to, how to craft that message in a way that the patients hopefully will respond to and that it will resonate with them. But the data would suggest that we, when we really try to frame the data and the, and the concept in a way that really personalizes it in terms of, you know, you've got the lungs of an 80-year-old, that that really does help to resonate with patients. So I do actually have some hope that if we came back to patients with that kind of information, it really could make a difference. I, and I love that relating it back to something that is, that is real. Just kind of aside, I always laugh at, you know, budget numbers out of the government. There's like, hey, we're trillions and trillions. It's like, that, that's not tangible, right? It's just a number. That's funny numbers up there. There's too many commas for me to really care about. But hitting somebody, hitting an 18-year-old between the eyes, like, you have lungs of a 70-year-old. You're not going to be able to breathe in 10 years. Oh, okay. This is something that's really, really valuable here. Once again, talking to Dr. Melan Han from University of Michigan, Chief Pulmonary Critical Care, author of Breathing Lessons, A Doctor's Guide to Lung Health. Dr. Han, last question for you here. Anybody looking to learn more information about your book, about your work, what's the best place to find it? And who do you believe should be reading it? Well, thanks for asking. So you can find more information about me and my book, as well as on my social media channels at drmelanhan.com, my website. So that's certainly... Uh, one place to start. The book can be found pretty much at every major retailer here in the United States, as well as overseas. And uh, I think that the message, honestly, is for everybody. Not everyone's going to want to read every single section. I get that. But I think for physicians, for instance, there's a lot of really interesting information about how we can message to patients about protecting their lung health. There's all sorts of stuff on sort of over the life course, what to think about things. For instance, running a gas stove or wood-burning fire in the home and the risk that that imposes. There's all sorts of practical things. Exercise actually can help to preserve lung function over time. So there's a lot of just kind of really practical information in there, as well as obviously for patients, whether you're just a mom and you want to you know, help raise healthy kids or you actually have lung disease yourself and you're trying to understand, well, how do I best advocate for myself? What kind of test should I be looking for? Or I don't even understand how to interpret this test that they did. So I, I really think that there's a little bit of information in there for everybody. Dr. Han, thank you so much for taking time to join us here. I'm thrilled that we have incredibly intelligent people like yourself working on these issues, help, uh, help I guess, better and further the human condition. And and really help out society as a whole. So thank you for your work and thank you for taking time to join us here on our podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com. 
catch previous episodes, subscribe to our mailing list, check out our fantastic online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.